0: Uh, last Wednesday, a lot of you were here for this, but if you weren't, we had a, um, an annual celebration and meeting, uh, which we do every January for some business kind of things, but also to, just to celebrate what God's been up to this uh, past, the, the, the year prior, and then kind of looking ahead as well. One of, th- one, one of the things I mentioned last Wednesday was that right now as a church, we're experiencing the most change we ever have in one year. So we're about 12 years old as a church, and the most change, and I say that for those of you who have been around for a while, you're probably like, it's actually kind of saying a lot because we've experienced a lot of change for a long time now. Uh, but this past year, we've we've hired new staff. Uh, it's a church planting year for us as well. Uh, last fall, we sent out, we said goodbye to 10% of our church so that they could start a new one elsewhere in South Minneapolis, just west of us, kind of by 35 W and 34th Street, uh, Risen Church, and that was a huge win for us. We've been celebrating that for months now and talking about it, and we were up to it as well, building towards it, praying for it, and We want to be a sending church. That's a huge, actually, part of what we are and who we are, too. So if you're new, uh, we're not going to talk a lot about that today, thematically or topically, but just know that about us. We we care about the local church. We want to start new churches. And we think one of the best ways that can happen is by birthing them out of our church. So sending leaders, sending people that want to be a part of that, to want to bring light into darkness and to be gospel bearers, Christ bearers uh, into places that, uh, have yet to hear or where there's not as much church presence or the reality is statistically we just need more churches in this city. Uh, we, we need and you look at the stats in terms of like uh, how many churches there are, how many are dying, how many are starting, population growth, all of that. Uh, lots of opportunity with immigrants moving in here too and so we think missionally too about that. All kinds of stuff. We just need uh, need more churches. So, so with that piece said though, you know, we've we sent out ten percent of our church last year, but we're seeing many new faces as well so if you're new to our church and define that however you want uh, but new or new ish uh, welcome we, we love that we're a church that has some turnover we think it's healthy for a church to have that we love saying I uh, don't love it, but we, we love saying goodbye to, to people to start new things and, and to do new things and start churches, but we also love saying hello to people and welcoming them into our church um, but that's a lot of relational turnover so if you just kind of do the math in your head, that's we actually have still seen modest growth this past year. So saying goodbye to ten percent of your church, but still um, having some growth means there must be a lot of new people here, and we, we know it's happening, and that's that's great. Uh, but but at year's beginning, and because it's likely though, because of all of that, that many of you haven't heard us talk explicitly about our vision and who we are as a church. Today's purpose is to do that, and uh, to kind of disclaimer this a little. These are notoriously difficult sermons to give, uh, as there are about almost literally a thousand things we could talk about. I was complaining and moaning to Spence earlier in the week, just like, what am I going to talk about? This is really hard for me. Uh, But every year it is. I I go through the same rhythm. Uh, But we always begin with this. Our, Our passion, our love, our mission, our reason for existing at all, the central theme to everything we do is Jesus Christ. Uh, he is the center, and he's not, he's not, and we'll talk about this in a little bit, he's not a relic, he's not a name or an idea, he's a living, breathing human being who walked this earth, who was also God's son, who was alive, who walked out of that tomb 2,000 years ago, and who came to the world to rescue us. That's, that's a huge deal for us. And that may sound like that's, that's a, that goes without saying for a church, that it's that's a foregone conclusion, but it just isn't. And it may not be your experience, and if that's not the case, I'm, I'm glad for you, I'm, I'm grateful that you've had good church experiences, but the reality is, and this has been true for 2,000 years, that there's always been a wayward church, there's always been a jesus church out there, which isn't really a church that many of you have come from. And so regardless of your, of your pasts, we, we don't want this to go without saying. We want to be um, almost uh, painfully repetitious and clear in how we talk about him as the central motif to, uh, to everything we do. And not just him, we're also clear on this, but his gospel as well, the good news of his death and his resurrection. It's that those central pieces to Christianity, but that resurrection piece is huge. And there's a lot to understand in this book, a lot of smaller stories and smaller doctrines and pieces and events and names and psalms and prophecies and all of that that serve to tell the greater story. There's a lot to understand in the book But, at the end of the day, we believe that Jesus walked out of that tomb 2,000 years ago. We really believe it. History attests to it. Reason attests to it. The scriptures attest to it. And the church's existence is only really explained by it. And this is incredibly unifying, too, to an otherwise diverse people. Uh, It is the, the gospel. We say this about the gospel, but I'll say it about the resurrection here specifically, that you can have diversity When when you centralize uh, Christ, when you centralize the fact that the resurrection really happened, that Jesus really died, we make that our our bullseye. I, I tell, for example, I tell other Christians sometimes who maybe are here and they're differing from us theologically on minor things, but who also believe that Jesus walked out of that tomb, I tell them sometimes, do you realize how much we have in common? Have you thought about that? I mean, in comparison to people who don't believe that, how similar we are? We believe the resurrection happened. We believe someone walked out of a tomb who was dead for three days, who said it was going to happen, who's the Lord of life. We're so similar, you and I. We might feel different, but the church is great at that. We're great at making small things bigger things than they have to be and dividing. But to have that similar place of being unified you know, um, you know across those... Um, you know, minor doctrinal differences to, to, to major on the resurrection, uh, it's, it's, a, it's, it's a big deal. So, so what I want to do today is look at a passage about Jesus, about a resurrection. It may seem a little random for a visioning sermon, but, uh, but it's not. Uh, this is going to be, um, for those of you, again, who are new especially, but if you're just checking us out, this is a great day to be here. If you're brand new or newish to our church, you'll find a lot about what makes us tick. as as a community. This is essentially going to be a, this is why we love Jesus so much here kind of sermon. That will in turn help us to talk more about some philosophical aspects of ministry at Hiawatha as well. So we will will get to that. But um, for the sake of focusing, uh, we're going to look at Luke 7 today, 11 to 17. So turn there in your Bibles if you want. This will be on screen, relatively short passage uh, that will be... um, on screen here as, as well. But if you want some context to it, I encourage you to turn in your Bibles if you'd like or to a phone app or something. But let's read in, in full to begin here. Luke 7, 11 to 17. Soon afterward, he, Jesus, went to a town called Nain. And his disciples and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother. And she was a widow. And a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her. And he said to her, Do not weep. Then he came up and touched the bier, and the bear stood still. And he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us. And God has visited his people. And this report about him spread throughout the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. All right, so right off the bat, here's something about Jesus that we love. And so we're going to talk about this. What does this mean? Where's the gospel in this passage? How is this communicating theological truth to us? As all the scriptures are intending, they're all about Christ. Uh, not just these gospel uh, parts or components, but we're going we're to talk about that, but also from a vision standpoint. So I'll frame it sometimes as a, here's something about Jesus that we point to at Hiawatha Church. We highlight, we celebrate, we don't want to forget, and, and things like that. So, so to start with that in mind, here's something about Jesus that we love that comes out in Luke 7. In the Gospels, when Jesus enters towns, He looks for opportunities to do good. When Jesus enters towns, he looks out for opportunities to show off his power and to do miracles and to do general good to people. Here, look at some of the words given over to him. He sees people in their distress. He moves towards them. He has compassion on them. And here he commands to this grieving mother, who's also a widow, don't weep. Don't cry, which is a crazy thing to say at a funeral, right? In fact, we should never say that. Don't, don't copy Jesus here. This is not a follow Jesus' example passage. This is a gospel passage. Don't ever say to a grieving mother or a grieving anybody at a funeral, don't cry. They have the right to cry. It's inappropriate to say that. But Jesus does. So what does that tell us? He's not simply a human being. He has authority to say it. He can say it. He can say it because he's there. Right? And if we we put our hand over the rest of the passage, we don't know what's coming. It just has this dramatic kind of irony to it. It just brings us to the front of our seat and, and we ask, who is this guy? Who speaks like this? Who walks into funerals and says, don't cry? Jesus can because he's there and because he's stronger than death. This is something else we love about Jesus. His compassion is mixed with his authority and power over the problem. So it's amazing that Jesus is like this. And remember, when you think about Christ, think about God. He's God's son, and Jesus says, when you see me, you see the Father. When you see me, you understand what God is like. Jesus himself, and what he says and does, is granting clarity to the question of what is God like. Whereas maybe in the Old Testament, earlier in the story, there's a lot we learn, but there's a lot we don't learn. There's a lot of fogginess. Christ is the great clarifier of questions. He's the great mystery solver. He's the great fan that blows at the haze that surrounds the question of, what is he like? I can't see him. But with Christ, we can see him, and he can see us even better. So we love this idea that compassion is mixed with authority and power, because compassion without power or power without compassion would either make God out to be simply kind, but not able to do any any good towards us, ultimately, Or maybe simply an obligated healer. So one who's able to heal, but one whose arm we have to twist to get something out of him. Because he doesn't really want to do good. But together, those two things together, compassion and power, means that he's good, he wants to heal, and he can heal. Essentially, it means that he's God. So then look at the resolve, and in this passage... And try to, you know, smell the air a bit and bring yourself into the, 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 the scene here. Jesus sees this woman. He sees the man lying on the, the bier, which was like a, a movable cart that a casket or a body would lie on uh, to move to, uh, towards a, a tomb or a gravesite. Jesus sees this commotion and this grieving at the, at the front of, like, the city gate, the marketplace, and he moves towards them and he touches it, and it stops, which is a, a beautiful, like, kind of narrative detail inclusion here, that he touches the beer, and it stops. Because de- death is like this steamrolling object in our lives. It doesn't, it never stops. It's unavoidable. There's no essential oil for death, you know. But when Jesus touches death, though, here, he touches the thing that's carrying death, it's the one that stops. Don't you love that? Jesus can touch death, and it just stops in its tracks. You know, but the people here at this point maybe are thinking he's crazy. Maybe they're a bit appalled that he would even have the audacity to suggest that this can be kind of turned around. Let us grieve, Jesus. Maybe some are momentarily forgetting their sadness, and they're watching with anticipation, and then he does it. He commands life into a breathless being like God did in the earlier parts of the Bible, for the first human created, Adam, when he breathed air or life into his nostrils, it says, and he began to breathe. And then it says, Jesus gives him to his mom. This piece, I love this piece here, it's a bit of a passing thing, but easy to miss, but look at it. Jesus presents him, gives him, after he sits up and speaks, gives him to his mom, It's amazing theological, again, theological detail here, that Jesus with compassion actively reunites mother and son. This tells us so much about what he's like. So many things we could spend all morning talking about, but just a quick list. It tells us that Jesus is against moms losing their kids. He's against that. He's against tears. He's against funerals. And he's for gift-giving. He's for life. He's for reuniting parties that were broken by death or broken relationally in any way. He's for that kind of stuff. This is what God is like. And so for some of us, we just, ha- we just haven't heard that before yet. You know, God is the one who empathizes. He's not just kind of mute or passive or, you know, gray in the face against these things. He- he's actively against them like we are. So we grieve. God does all the more. We're against them. We don't like them. Well, guess what? He is like that all the more. And we see that here. It's good news. And this is what begins to make this not just a story, but gospel for us. And that is, this is what Jesus is like to all of us today, right now. Way more than we realize. Luke 7 means that God is looking for opportunities to do good to you. Every day, all the time. In in the Gospels, I was mentioning this earlier, but in the Gospels, narratively, you see this play out where it even says this sometimes, it's this narrative inclusion from the the author, the narrator of what's going on. It says, Jesus was asking the question, where else can we go to show my power and grace and love? What, What other towns haven't I been to yet? He's actively entering towns, going from town to town to heal people, teach, show kindness to do good and to raise the dead. In other words, he doesn't sit on an unapproachable throne in the temple in Jerusalem and wait for people to come to him. Isn't that amazing? Rather, he does good to us. He 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 finds us. He's not waiting for you to do good for him. That's the gospel. God is not waiting for you to do good to him because you and I are lying on our backs on caskets and beers being carted off to our tombs we can't do good before him but rather God the gospel says God is actively moving towards spiritually dead people and physically dead people obviously and he's addressing that that issue so that's how this becomes gospel for us he walks into the towns of our hearts to our spiritual funerals uninvited mind you sees us wakes us up when we aren't even in the act of looking for him or in the act of moral performance You know, was the corpse in the act of doing good when Jesus found him lying there, saying, wow, that corpse is doing amazing things uh, for the poor? Like, no, he's dead. We're saved by Jesus' gracious will, not by our works. And see, that's the twist in Luke 7, as it relates to the rest of the gospel story. And actually, there's a couple of twists, two layers to this. One, Jesus doesn't do this for everyone. Jesus doesn't raise every dead person. He doesn't cleanse every leper. He doesn't de-oppress every oppressed person. Why? It begs the question, right? He doesn't for many, in different parts and regions, some passages say he did it for many, but some it's more sporadic. There's only a couple of people he raised from the dead. Why? The answer is, there must be something even greater than these resurrections. There must be. The story continues anyway. What adds to this idea is this son in this story, this widow or mom, in the whole crowd watching, all of them eventually died someday. In the son's case, again, poor guy, they died twice, right? This tells us that this wasn't the ultimate miracle, but it does point to it. And that's the second and ultimate twist to this story. Jesus fulfills the story himself. Jesus Christ fulfills it himself. He is the true only son, the the, the phrase is here in Luke 7, he's the true only son who dies and is raised, who doesn't just touch a beer but lays on one himself for us, who truly moves us from Good Friday weeping to Easter laughing. So, so the way he secures all of our resurrections is by first dying for us. For our sins, which, you know, sin is the thing that holistically causes death in the first place. And then he rises again that we might rise with him now spiritually and one day physically. There's a lot to say about that theologically, so if that's new to you, it's a little bit confusing. But biblically, it's what Christians believe, that there's layers to the idea of resurrection. There's spiritual resurrection that happens by faith. And there's physical bodily resurrection that happens when Jesus comes back. And he actually, like this, he's going to do more of this someday. Isn't this exciting? This is not just, yeah, there's a, there's a, a moral example in the resurrection that, that is like just believe in yourself and get up off your back and dust yourself off, blah, blah, blah. You know, this is history. This is theology. This is going to happen. He's going to put people's bodies back together someday, but... It's by faith this occurs. It's for his people in the church that this occurs. And it only happens through, like, the lens and the, the avenue and the pipeline of him first doing this for us, as a human and as the, as the son of God, dying for sins, which, again, think of it like a river. So think of, like, the headwaters in a river. Sin is what leads to death. And so when Jesus dies for sins, he cuts off the source of the river which is death, which eventually allows that river to dry up. So death, like the the riverbed of death, is going to be dry and cracked. The order there is very reasonable. It makes sense. Deal with sin, and death will eventually follow and give way. So that's what he's doing. It's a two-sided coin to the idea of what Christ is battling ultimately for us. Or think of it this way. Until Jesus dies and is raised, resurrection is very spotty, and temporal. But now, in Christ, it's universal, it's eternal, and it's comprehensive. So, th- there are a few things about our vision then at Hiawatha as it relates to all, to all of this. There, there's a couple of things here philosophically, and we could talk a lot more, of course, about a lot of this. Actually, to invite you guys, quick sidebar here uh, Spence mentioned this earlier in the. Um, announcements we have we have a class that goes over all this stuff more comprehensively on february 3rd if you'd like to attend that we invite you to that which we uh we go into more depth but a couple of things here to know about our church this is why we're doing this is how does this then not only speak to what we believe our gospel but also how does this inform our like our philosophy of ministry we talk a lot about bullseyes and outer rings what's the main thing what are the minor things how do they relate it's very delicate uh, but this is what we want to do as a church Uh, First, we want people to know this love more and more. Look at this prayer in Ephesians 3 for the church. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, that he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. That's a great prayer. I don't even know what he's saying half the time, but it's a great prayer, you know. It's one of those, whoa, it's amazing, but what's he saying? One of those Pauline moments there, but it's great. A couple things, though, to see here. One, big things. It's possible to know the love of Christ way more than we do now right? Otherwise, why pray this? The prayer makes no sense. This is why we think sometimes in American evangelicalism is we're all about conversion as this punctiliar event. Happens once, then we move on from the gospel to something else. But this prayer makes no sense in the face of that. This is for Christians we pray. this is what I want, he's saying, for Christians. That your headaches might go away? Not really. I mean, maybe that's a great prayer too. It's not what he's praying here. What he wants is that Christians would know the love of God and know it in all these comprehensive height, depth, length, breadth. Know this kind of love that surpasses worldly knowledge. He wants Christians to grow up and mature in what they already know. Isn't that a great prayer? This is a sidebar here too. Pray this for your church, you guys. Some of you might be from other churches that you're visiting. Pray this for the church you're a part of. If you're here, pray this for your leaders. Pray this for me, please pray this for me every day and for my family. Pray this for people you know in the church. Word for word, open your Bibles, read it. There is nothing wrong with praying scriptural prayers verbatim. In fact, it is a very good way uh, to pray, especially when we don't think we have the words and know what to say. All right, second, relatedly to this prayer, know that it's by understanding the love of Christ, understanding that his love drove him to the cross to die for our sins. It's by understanding that more that we are filled with the fullness of God. In other words, it's another phrase for like maturity, becoming like him. That's important as well. This type of prayer actually demands that we are tirelessly repetitious with our gospel. Note here it's not moralism or law that fills us with God. It's knowing God's love that fills us with God. Do you see that, guys? So critical to get. It's not what you do that fills you with the fullness of God. It's knowing Christ's love that fills you with the fullness of God. This is huge practically, not just theologically. It's huge in terms of how do we spend our days as Christians? What do we do as churches? How do we spend our time? What do we talk about? It's ramifications for all of that and more, if this is true, and it is. It's huge for church, it's huge for theology, it's huge for our lives. So one, this is what we want uh, as a church. What we're about philosophically, ministerially, but uh, theologically and practically here as a community. Second, and also related, we want to uh, go to war. We want to war against death versus just do a few little good things physically for our city. First Timothy 1 Timothy 1.18 says, wage the good warfare. And when you see a, a thing like that in the New Testament, what does that imply? It implies that there's an enemy, or there'd be no war, right? So then the question is, what's our enemy? Ephesians 6 says, the battle, the enemy is not flesh and blood. In other words, it's not physical in the way that we might understand wars to kind of play out. It's not people, it's not physical things, it's instead uh, spiritual. So Christians who, you know, it shapes the way we think about going to war. So Christians who understand this, as an example, care deeply about things like ministry to the poor in their church and outside, but they go more all in on the battle against the devil and his angels, against sin, against spiritual poverty, and against death, ultimately against hell. They, they, they take Jesus' words seriously when he says that my church uh, will war against hell so much the gates of hell will not prevail against the onslaught of the church. So how do we do that? How do we war in this capacity? Two big ways. Again, this is a whole other sermon, but just two big things to understand about how we view the church's just job and duty in our philosophy of ministry is two big things, loving others and preaching the gospel. And I say those very holistically too. So preaching not just in what I'm doing here, That's a piece to it, of course, but I mean just talking about the resurrection, heralding good news uh, to our hearts, to people in our church who already know it, to our kids as we build the next generation and to a dead and dying world around us every day. So basically what we want to do as a church, we want to be a church that touches figurative beers and calls out to dead people, live. That's what we want to do. And enters into dark areas like funerals and brings light to them and heralds Christ as the way out from that predicament. And we also want to be a church who loves others deeply in strange, surprising, otherworldly, and sacrificial ways. So that because we believe Christ's love softens hearts and it leads them to the truth. So there's a reason we're doing this uh, this morning. Uh, I mentioned some of them. But if we centralize something other than Jesus it becomes very easy to replace him with some kind of well-intentioned agenda and so talk more about um, philosophy of ministry here and who we are as a community Uh, you know for many churches I said this too but for many churches Jesus is just a relic and not the living breathing sacrificially loving savior of our souls he's more of an advice giver than a casket opener it's a huge difference there you guys Jesus is not an advice giver. He opens caskets. You know, if, if that's just a, a metaphor, then we'll go back to Jesus being an advice giver. That's like all he'll be. But if it really happened, if you really stare death in the face and won, I'll follow that. Right? I mean, it wins us over to following him rather than just some kind of agenda. We just don't want our church to become more of a social agenda than we are a hospital for sinners. So just some examples of how we think here, Uh, like we have a a partnership with our neighborhood school, which is uh, right over here, Hiawatha Elementary. Um, People are very important to us. This neighborhood is very important to us because those things are important to God. And so as an expression of that, we want to help out our neighborhood school with events and with food donations and other things uh, throughout the year. If you want more information on that, you can talk to us, but Um, In our eyes, though, we do this as a reflection of Christ's love, not because it's the center of our faith. It's a big difference there. If we just talked about doing good, who needs the resurrection? Who needs Jesus? Other than than maybe as an example. So um, understand this about us uh, as you might be asking questions about whether this is a church that, that you want to call home or not. Understand, we will always be disproportionate in how we talk about gospel versus social good. Unashamedly, we'll always be disproportionate, always talk much more about the essence of the good news or gospel, Jesus' death and resurrection, that Luke 7 whispers and shouts, versus talking about the social good, though we will talk much about that as well. But church—but this is our, our perspective. Churches must be disproportionate, because Jesus was. Jesus didn't, like, balance his death and resurrection with the social good he did he didn't cleanse all the lepers but he did heal all spiritual lepers when he died for sins amen so he's disproportionate so it's prideful and arrogant for us to think we have a better way oh we have a better way of seeing the kingdom expand it's 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 wrong it's sinful and so we want to be balanced and healthy in how we go about uh talking about talking about these things you can put a lot of things in there, like uh, other big things today that we care about, like immigration issues and, that we care about, or something like or sex trafficking. I mean, that's another big thing. Um, it's a very sobering, important issue that we care about. When we ask the question, how do you address it? Complicated. Um, you know, we know some of you have given a, a good chunk of your life to this, and that's great. We love that. Um, We've talked about this in sermons, and and Spence gave a great sermon that touched on this uh, a while ago now, right, Spence, months ago. Really good, and um, we'll we'll do that again. With this said, it's not our bullseye. And and for a lot of you, that just makes sense. It's kind of a duh statement, but for some of you, you just need to hear this. It's not the church's bullseye. And Jesus mirrors this well. We see a glimpse of this in his earthly ministry. Um, Actually, think about it this way. If if he were here, this is... You guys know I hate this question, but here I am asking it. Uh, if, if Jesus were here today, right, I, I hate that speculative question, but I'm part of the problem here because I'm asking it. But um, I'm, I'm saying this, though, because Jesus doesn't, like, explicitly address, like, sex trafficking in, in his ministry. And so transposing his Galilean ministry onto today, asking that question, if he were here, if you talk about what, the, what oppressed people look like and how the church addresses this stuff today, that's what I'm saying. But if that, were, if that were the case, strange hypothetical, but let's, just, let's just go there for a second. I think three things. One, I think he would save women from sex trafficking. Well, women and men, but, but just talk about women. Save women from sex trafficking and call out oppressors. For sure. But in the spirit of Luke 7, uh, it wouldn't be comprehensive. He, he wouldn't do it for all women, like everywhere. He would do it for many, potentially, and, and he, but he would do it substantially. It would be good. It would be glorify God. It would... It would do a lot of good, uh, but just like he didn't raise every dead person or cleanse every leper, it wouldn't be, it would be physically comprehensive. Then I think he would widen out a bit with his teaching and say to the victim and the oppressor, you both need me. Like Jesus spoke to oppressors and victims in, in his ministry, the message was always the same for people like uh, Zacchaeus, who was an oppressor, and the woman at the well in John 4 as examples. His message was the same, you both need me. So I didn't come just to physically de-oppress, I came to spiritually de-oppress. That's huge, huge for us as we think about what the church is supposed to do. Huge. His invitation was to follow, follow me. And he gets forgiveness for both. It's, it's massive in how we think about sin, how we're a part of problems. I don't know if you guys have seen the documentary Nefarious, it's about sex trafficking, and it's super hard to watch. Um, But I still encourage you to try, I guess, um, and get through it. I had to stop a few times. It was so disturbing. Uh, But in there, you see these testimonies of, um, you know, not just those who are trafficked, but also um, johns and pimps and um, traffickers who themselves have repented and themselves who are saved by the gospel. And you see both now working together to combat this, which is beautiful. So you see both things. So those first two things, but then I think what would happen to go back to the Christ uh, idea here is that Christ would die a horrible death on a cross to exemplify uh, for, for all of our sins, to exemplify the fact that there on the cross he was tackling the worst of sexual sins. The worst of humanitarian catastrophes. Restoring sinners to God. Washing DNA from spiritual filth. Essentially to save us all from being trafficked by sin. Now, as you think about that, I know that might be new and a little hard to hear. And if you can email me at spencerhighaboutthechurch.com if you have any questions about this later. Um, this is delicate. I'm not trying to say this is an easy thing. I know we could spend a long time on this. Uh, it's, it's, it's delicate. But think about the progression in those things. Don't misunderstand. All of what I just said is very important. All of it. But some of it is more important than other parts of it. Jesus lived and taught and died that way. And then he was raised so we might live and even have a model for church ministry that's empowered by his spirit as well. Think about actually the, the son in Luke 7. You know, how do you think he spent the rest of his life after he literally woke up in his casket? Put yourself in that, you know, you're waking up from a nap and, oh, what? You're in your casket. It's like a bad haunted house or something, you know, or something like that. It's like, Whoa! How do you think he spent the rest of his life? Probably, primarily, talking a lot about Jesus and his resurrection, his experience. Then, secondarily, being moved by the love and grace shown him by God and reflecting that to others, paying that forward, reflecting that towards others. And so, as we talk about then what this means for our church and, and, and an invitation, that I want to give you guys um, here is to think about your life, and I'm speaking to Christians. Some of you might not be Christians yet. I want you to hear the gospel, and Luke said, that's the invitation for you is to come believe in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. Those of you who are Christians, as you think about church ministry too, which is kind of wedded to that, and how to just be a Christian day to day. I want to invite you to think about your life as a Christian similarly to probably what the son was thinking in Luke 7, how he spent the rest of his life. The first first is this, is to let passages like Luke 7 challenge misconceptions and lies about God and the gospel that you and I are inclined to believe. So what I mean by that, whatever you thought of God when you walked in here, let, let Luke 7 challenge misconceptions and lies. So if you don't believe, he loves you if you don't believe he sees you, if you don't believe he seeks to do good to you, if you don't believe that you're saved by his grace and not by your works, if you don't believe he's stronger than death. You know, these are all real problems, biblical and experiential problems, issues that the Bible addresses and the Bible speaks truth against to allow those lies to kind of just dissipate. And so whatever you've thought about God, and we are, we, I am, we are so good at listening to lies about God. We're, just, we're inclined to that all the time. And so the Bible then is God's primary means of saying this is who I am. Uh, believe in me and dispel the lies about me that you, that you were uh, formerly believing. So God is really good. He really died. He really rose again. He really cares. He sees you guys right now. Whatever you're going through, he sees you. And he has compassion and power. He's not just, oh, sorry you're going through that. You know, he has compassion and power. You know, he, he's able to overcome things. He, if he overcame death, he can overcome anything else, you know, at, at the same time, whether that's now by prayer, by a miracle, or when he comes back again someday. In the end, there's no more crying. Isn't that great? No more crying. So crying is a temporal thing. No more crying in the future. That's something to hold on to, you know. And so here, we'll see in a whisper of that, when Jesus says don't cry to this widow, this woman, don't weep, It's a whisper of what's even yet future for us because we still cry today. We still weep. It's a glimpse of the future when God himself will wipe tears from our eyes with a smile and he'll embrace us. That's what's possible because he died on a cross for our sins, because he brought us back to him, because he loved us in that way, and because he rose again. So that's the first thing. The second thing an invitation here is to leave behind, and I'm going to really highlight this word, centralizing some kind of political or social agenda while maybe still caring deeply about them. So this is one of those, whoa, things. Um, but that's where I think we have to be as Christians, to wrestle and bounce around it. These are outer ring things, though. So it's an invitation to come away from central, Not to come away from caring about them, but to come away from, from centralizing them And just come enjoy Jesus with us here. Come enjoy him. Growing in knowledge of his love, then loving each other and together loving others and doing good for our city. Out of that love. And respecting that might look different, Christian to Christian, on an individual basis. So this doesn't mean that we don't get angry at our president for saying stupid things about immigrants. We should get angry and call that out, because he does it all the time don't scour his Twitter feed, it'll just bring your soul to the pits of hell, you know, kind of thing, but it doesn't mean we don't don't kind of just address these things, but uh, it does mean we dare not centralize them, and churches do this, and maybe you guys haven't, praise God if you haven't, maybe it's not, that's kind of a new thought, or a strange thought, but I'm guessing for a lot of you, you've seen that, in your heart, or elsewhere, we can't do it, you know, it, Jesus is not the same thing as social good, or political agenda, yeah, they might point to each other sometimes whatever that means but it's not the same thing and so as a church it's just not what we're going to do we're, we're going to talk about the gospel grow in it preach it sing it eat it rhythmically we're going to share it with a dead and dying world because people who are who are oppressed or oppressing are we all of us are, are sinful and all of us are going to die Ecclesiastes has a great ver- uh, passage. It's an Old Testament kind of proverbial book. It says, really good people and really bad people die and they're buried next to each other. A lot of wisdom in that. What good is being good then? We die right next, it, I think it was Spurgeon who said that that's the great equalizer, death is. you know Six feet of dirt, basically he said, uh, makes it everything equal before God. You know, that doesn't mean like we don't try to do good. It just means that there must be something more important. Otherwise, good people would never die. But we need Jesus because we do. So we'll, we'll, we'll centralize that. Uh, all of us then, and I'll end with a, just a thought here. As Christians, so to speak to you Christians, especially who are calling this church home, all of us, you guys, have been called out of our caskets like this boy was 2,000 years ago. We have a lot in common. We're, we're not that different. Don't forget that. We're a lot alike because of that belief. Let's remember our origins and order our life accordingly as we think about what the church is supposed to be about and our lives. And let's be a people who worship tirelessly, who hold up Jesus as more than a relic or a moral example, but a savior of the world, the one who died died and who is now alive, praise be to God, who carried our sins far away, and who loves us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the gospel today of of Christ. Thank you for um, the vision, God, really that you give for a church. We're not uh, trying to be novel or cute or new. We're trying to be very ancient and repetitious and old. Uh, Not something that says, wow, man, this church is doing something so new. Uh, We don't want that. Uh, We don't want to be novel, so help us not to be. Help us to be biblical and ancient and traditional in in what drums we beat, in what philosophies ministerially we propose and live in, in what theologies that, again, we we pronounce and, and make beautiful, God. Like that prayer says in Ephesians 3, Father, help us to understand the love of Christ, the height, depth, breadth, length, just how it surpasses human wisdom and knowledge. Help us to understand that. Help it to change us. Inside out, that we might know you better, be reconciled to our creator through Christ's blood alone, have no fear of death, and then to live just victoriously and um, powerfully and uh, in a mobilized manner uh, towards those who are suffering in this world, those who don't know God yet or Christ. Um, Father, with the light of, of all lights, we can really do a lot of good. In this world. Help us to do that as a community, not individually, uh, but together to do that. We pray for help in that um, with the gospel being our main mantra. Uh, we pray for help. And uh, so, God, thanks for Luke 7 and what it tells us about you. Um, forgive us for not believing those things really well. Um, help us too, though. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's stand again as we respond together with these songs.